0: Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, the podcast for those who like their politics and colors other than red and blue. I am your host, Dan Sally, and I am recording this in Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. Now, for those longtime listeners, we are still going without our theme music in respect for everything going on in Ukraine. And if you're new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, tell one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth. Now, I hope you've been enjoying the past couple episodes on Ukraine and I've got some cool stuff in the works to explore the way the world could change in response to it. And I kind of alluded to that a bit in our last episode and I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the show. Things are happening fast and so I wanted to take a breather and connect with Arjun at The Factual. And for those of you who are new to the show, The Factual is a news site that sorts news by partisan lean and credibility and it makes it easier to find the most accurate news and they regularly poll their readership on issues of the day. And this readership spans uh, across the country but also across political ideology. Now, they've run a number of polls on the war in Ukraine and I really wanted to get a feel for where public opinion was on America's involvement. Uh, I've been continuously surprised by how unified the country and the world has been in response to Russia's invasion, and this conversation proved no different. I will be back at the end with some final thoughts. It's Monday, March 21st, when we're talking origin, and as I told you before, I've spent the last couple weeks digging into the conflict in Ukraine, digging into some of the geopolitical ramifications. I feel like I've just spent the past two weeks huffing ayahuasca because it's been like pretty goddamn intense. And so for our conversation, you know, really what I want to get a feel for is, is where, where's America? Where are the American people in terms of this conflict? And I know you've been running a bunch of polls of the factual's readership on this, and I really hoping to dive in and and get a feel for where folks are first question I'm going to throw at you is that I was really encouraged at the beginning of this conflict, that there was just such an overwhelming pro-Ukrainian consensus. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any whataboutism. There wasn't a lot of mm-hmm. competing theories or competing versions of the truth. And it seems like overall, there's a fairly unified response against Russia. In terms of the polling that you've run on the factual, is, is, does that match what I'm seeing?
1: Yeah, I think so. I I can't even recall any real comments that are meaningfully supportive of Russia. And to be clear, a bunch of our readers do a good job of differentiating between Russians and President Putin and his sort of inner cabinet. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are careful to mm-hmm. say, this isn't the Russians at war. This is Putin's decision. Uh, which is nice to see that nuance because, of course, Russian citizens are all over the world. and most of our countries, we probably even know some Russians. And so it's nice to see people taking care, saying, hey, we don't want this blowback to affect people who had nothing to do with this decision, which is nice. But yeah, overwhelmingly support for the Ukrainians. And there and there are five different questions that we can go into that we polled on. One of the things that I'll say is normally foreign policy isn't something that is of deep interest to Americans. And you can talk to, uh, you know, political consultants or analysts. Uh, we we once spoke with Diane Hessen back on The Unbiased Show a few months mm-hmm. ago. And, you know, she had been polling people across the country for five years on what they were interested in. One thing she said is, foreign policy just isn't top of mind. And in fact, funnily enough, she gave the example of Ukraine, because this was back during 2019, 2020, when people are talking about, you know, was there corruption in Ukraine that, was, uh, that involved President Biden or his son? And she said most people couldn't even point out Ukraine on a map. Like, it's just not the most mm-hmm. urgent thing. So I think that's true. And, and it's worth keeping in mind because sometimes the poll questions are fairly difficult foreign policy questions. For example, no-fly zones or NATO's involvement. And the public sentiment may not always be the most informed point of view. Like it's good to see what the public thinks. And there are lots of really interesting and good comments. But I would say we should be a little cautious because in normal times, most people don't think so much about foreign policy. And when there's a war going on, if everyone wants to weigh in, it's understandable, but they may not always have all the context and history and understanding of repercussions of various decisions. So I just say that that's maybe a a timeline factor to consider because we've been doing this for years now. And, you know, it's the the common trope on Twitter is everyone who was an immunology expert last week is now a war expert this week. And so, you know, just be a little cautious as we go into this.
0: Yeah, exactly. We have a whole class of budding Kremlinologists who are are appearing out of nowhere. (laughs) There's an episode that I did back in september right when we had the withdrawal from afghanistan which you and you and i talked about as well with a historian ken hughes who's really his his expertise is around presidential recordings during the vietnam era and the thing he says is that what's consistent about americans is they don't care about foreign policy and they don't care about wars until they go bad and I, i think that that highlights why For many reasons, or one of the reasons why the U.S. government is so cautious about entering into these affairs, because once you're in it, you're in it. And if it goes wrong, you own it, regardless of what the situation was. A couple other things I'll note for the listener. Number one, the polls we're going to talk about are going to be in the show notes, so you can reference them all. They're also on thefactual.com. You can check them out there. And number two, of course, the folks we're talking about, very diverse in terms of geography, political affinity and so on. So, you know, we get a good sample set in these factual polls, which is why we have these conversations. Were there any dissenters at all? Like, was there anybody who was like, we shouldn't get involved in this, this isn't our issue or?
1: Definitely. And just to be clear, I think what people are saying is we should find ways to support the Ukrainians as best we can. But most people still fall short of saying we should get involved directly. And so we had polls- Early on, saying, you know, should US troops be on the ground there? And overwhelmingly, the answer was no. We uh, pushed hard on some issues. So, for example, we said, what if Russia uses chemical weapons? Would you then change your mind? And so that's the first time that we actually had a majority say yes. 62% said yes that NATO should join the conflict if Russia uses chemical weapons. And so that was a poll from about a week ago. A few days ago, we asked about no-fly zone, and there people said no. So it shows you that I think the public still is wary of getting involved in a war and sending our troops there. Uh, They understand that no-fly zone is somewhat a direct confrontation and could lead to escalation in World War III and nuclear war and all these kinds of things. So there's that deterrent. There's a general deterrent of, I don't want to send our troops over into battle for some people, it seems like chemical weapons is a red line, maybe one that we should have observed um, back in Syria when it was crossed. And so there's a reason to, you know, there I think the majority of people are saying, okay, well, if that happens, we should go in. But the majority of people, I think, still want to support the Ukrainians through not sending troops, but sending whatever weaponry we can, sending any equipment, sending food aid, sanctions against the Russians, et cetera, et cetera. But everything short of sending our own military over there.
0: There is a sense that there's a point when people want to get involved. On the chemical weapons poll, what was the breakdown there?
1: It was 62% yes, 21% no, and 17% unsure. And so just to be clear, the question was, should NATO join the Ukraine conflict if Russia uses chemical weapons? There were 643 votes, so uh, statistically significant Sample, given that, you know, like you said earlier, our readership is all across the U.S. And in all 50 states and pretty politically balanced.
0: The the other thing, too, I wanted to get into in this conversation was international alliances, multilateral organizations, they've all taken a hit over the last couple of years. And there's been a lot of debate about the value of NATO, about the value of these alliances. Yeah. Should we be involved? Are they effective? Is there any sense that these organizations now have increased relevance after this invasion?
1: I don't have a great answer to that, but I'll, say, I'll share a poll that we did back in August of 21, and it was a very simple poll. It was that, you know, should climate be a top priority for governments? Because the context at the time was there were a lot of floods going on in Europe. And it was sort of uh, sort of unseen in, in that volume for quite some time. So it sort of decimated parts of Germany. And then, the, by the way, there were also devastating fires that were burning off Italy and, and Turkey, et cetera. So that was the context and we just asked people. And the majority of people, 64% said, yes, it should be. And I thought this was really interesting because, you know, even when we spoke with Diane Hessen, and if you read her book, Our Common Ground, she said that, the majority of Republican voters are concerned about climate change. And it's not clear to me that President Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Accord or the Paris Agreement would have been popular with the majority of Republican voters. I think there is a minority that would have been happy and vocal about it, but the majority were probably not. So which is to say, I don't know that Americans were really disenfranchised by international multilateral agreements before i think president trump took a very hard line in how he dealt with some of those agreements because he felt they were unfair or not particularly effective but i think the majority of americans mm-hmm. still want to be part of a global world order and they were that way in trump's presidency and they're that way now i certainly think that you know, what NATO is and what it stands for is a heck of a lot more clear today for people than it was six months ago. I think a lot more people are aware of that. So if I had to guess, I would think that the sentiment is even more that we should be part of a world order. But I just think it might have been artificially deflated in the past. I think Americans generally are not so insular. It just, we had a president that seemed like he was going to operate that way, that's all.
0: I found that really encouraging in the outbreak of the war was how quickly the US, how quickly NATO jumped into action and how quickly Euro- the European powers, who, to be frank, bear more of the brunt of a lot of these sanctions than we do, how quick they were to take really strong action. And, and my last guest, Andrew Small of the German Marshall Fund, he talked about how there's there's kind of two minds in Europe. And one is, of course, that under a different administration, this whole response might have been a lot different. Yeah, there might have been a much different approach because, again, you know, trying to remain equal to all sides or fair to all sides. Trump did not have the most cooperative relationship with the rest of NATO and with the rest Mm -hmm. of the allies. It's just he, he was a little more confrontational, you know, so there's that side of things. The other side of it is that because of everything that happened during the Trump era, Europe's a lot more independent and they, there's much more of a sense that we really need to take action. And so I think those two things were in play there. Um, Were there any comments or like indications of any isolationist bent in this? Like this war doesn't affect us, we have no business or or not so much.
1: Definitely, and it, it was in fact in the chemical weapons question where, you know, the 20% of people that voted no said, yeah, in fact, an explicit comment, and and all our comments are anonymous, so that people can speak freely. You know, they said, no, this is not our war. At most, it's a European war. This really doesn't have anything to do with us. Another person did it. You know, it, you could argue it's whataboutism, but I think it's a fair comment saying, if Russia attacks a NATO country, by all means, let NATO join the war. But otherwise, why are we taking action when it's Ukraine? Why not Sudan? Or why not Uyghurs in China? Why not Syria, et cetera? So. That's what aboutism, but a fair point that you know why is it in this case that NATO should get involved? So I think there's a lot of uh, there, there's a there's a good chunk. It's a minority, but a good chunk that say you know under no circumstance should NATO get involved unless NATO itself is directly
0: attacked. There's there's another question that your comment brings up, and this is a question that's been on my mind for a while is whether refugees from Ukraine deserve special treatment. And and the reason I found this question so relevant is because literally just a few months ago there were throngs of refugees from Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq who were on Poland's border with Belarus, yeah. trying to get into the EU and there was this big back and forth as to how they were going, you know, whether who was going to keep them to the point where Belarusian troops were cl- were clipping fences in the Polish border, allowing people to run through. So yeah. I- I'm curious, wh- what were the responses like there?
1: Yeah, so this also a very interesting question. That, uh, this was from two weeks ago. We said, do refugees from Ukraine deserve special consideration compared to other refugees? So other refugees from other nations. 59% said yes. 28% said no. 13% said unsure. And 469 votes. So again, statistically significant. And so... I think there's some legitimate reasons why some people think that Ukrainian refugees deserve different treatment. One is it is a war it's It's sort of a very clear war versus maybe individual security situations that appear, uh, you know that uh, apply to some people so for example, if you were in some very violent countries like in Central America, Honduras or Nicaragua, or uh, the violence may not affect everyone equally it's not It's not a war in that sense so it's maybe sometimes harder to say, you know, who's really affected and impacted. But in Ukraine's case, I think anyone fleeing Ukraine, you could sort of make a reasonable case that well, it's kind of obvious why they're here, they really have no other choice. So I think people recognize it is a special circumstance. There's also one of the big reasons why people felt that they deserve special consideration is that theoretically, most of these refugees go back after a few years. And I think that's really the big thing mm-hmm. that I kept seeing in comments is, these are not economic migrants, they're fleeing because of, you know, serious harm or or whatever, a war in in their space, and they have no other choice. So once the war is over, they're likely to go back and things will get better again, versus people who are fleeing for economic reasons, uh, which is sometimes the case, then they say, well, or rather not fleeing migrants who are coming here for better work, better life, etc. They're not going to go back, theoretically, they're really coming here to stay. So that was a big distinction why people felt, well, there's a different sort of consideration required for them. And then there are the more controversial reasons, I guess you could say, where some people said, look, the, the truth is these kinds of refugees are easier to assimilate and join into a Western European nation, or even actually the United States for that matter, compared to people from nations that have very different ideologies and different backgrounds from the U.S. And uh, that's, of course, a very sensitive topic because it borders on racist thinking in some sense. You know, you don't look like me, therefore you're not going to work as well here versus you do look like me. Of course, you're going to work work well here. I try not to use labels no matter how deserved they may or may not be just because it shuts down conversation versus sort of explores a conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I get what these people are saying is, look, some people will have an easier time sort of adopting our culture and values and having a more harmonious society. I'm just not sure if there's any data or evidence to back that up. So I get the hypothesis, but I don't know. I've never seen any data that says white refugees, for example, are more likely to assimilate and be productive in a white country than non-white refugees. I've just never seen anything. If it exists, I'm curious, but I've never seen it.
0: If, you, if you're listening and you have this data, let us know because I'm, I'm with you. And that, that was, it was funny. I read that question and I said to myself, I couldn't answer this because my answer is really, why aren't we treating the refugees that were coming through beforehand differently? Like right. that was my, that was my big, that was really my, and that, that's something I saw from the beginning was how the borders opened up for Ukraine. And granted, like, let's, I mean, just to make all things equal, Ukraine's a neighbor to Poland. That's right. It's it's not the same as like Afghanistan or Syria. It's not the same in the sense of its, uh, uh, of of the geographic proximity that's and right. the fact that the war really affects them, very much, you know, they can't take a passive role in this conflict. And, and, and so I appreciate that. And at the same time, you can't help, but see a double standard. And, and I think I couldn't answer for Europe. I think, I think frankly, and Arjun, feel free to disagree with me here. (laughs) I think Europe has a much tougher time absorbing, absorbing foreigners than America does. I just, I do. And that could just be prejudicial, but I, I feel like in in Europe there is, there's a German way of life, there's a French way of life, there's a Swedish way, and so on. They've all got yeah. kind of their own way of doing, doing things. And the system really requires a certain degree of conformity to function. And while America may look like the Wild West, part of that reason is because we just don't have that conformity. It just can't exist yeah. here, and that, is a weakness in some cases, but it also makes it a lot easier to blend in because yeah. there isn't so much expected of you. I don't know if you have an opinion on that. That's my I do. I mean,
1: I think you're right. Of- uh, you know, First of all, America is just a much younger country than most of those European countries. So we don't have some of the legacies that they may or have to live with or traditions they have to live with. Ours is it's just a much younger country. And being an immigrant myself, uh, having grown up in Canada and then come to the U.S. now for the last 25 odd years, I've come to recognize that America is something really special for uh, immigrants. It's not a perfect nation by any means, but I think more than any other country, it gives an opportunity to anybody coming here better than other countries would. America probably cares the least how you look and where you came from and cares the most about can you do the job and can you work harder than the next guy and great, then come on in. I think that is very much an American mentality. We just care about getting the job done first. We don't really care about how you look most of the time. It's not perfect. I know. I'm, I'm generalizing. But mm-hmm. having seen a bunch of other countries and i spent time in Germany a little bit, uh, of course, uh, being Indian, I've seen that as well. I think the United States is more open than it might realize. So all of which is to say that if I were setting policy, of course, all these questions are tough. There are no easy answers. However, Mm-hmm. Generally speaking if if people are coming to the United States and are interested in working hard and being productive we should let them in because that's what makes this economy grow and and get better and it matters less where you came from and how you look and what values you had before the question is do you want to work work hard you know, save for for your family, keep your family healthy, et cetera, et cetera. Great, let's do it. And, and, you know, in defense of that one commentator who I said, you know, that Ukrainians are different or the ideology being relevant, I think this is what he or she may have been getting at, which is we want people who want to come here and work hard, not any, uh, that person specifically called out, you know, we don't want people coming from socialist countries. The implication being that do they just come here and suck up resources and not contribute, which I think is, Probably not grounded in fact. I think that most people who are fleeing are just so thankful that they have a safe place now for their family that their first order of business is great, my family is safe. What do I need to do to keep the situation going and help them to have a good outcome? I think that's most people, regardless of whether you come from a capitalistic country or a socialist country or whatever flavor you want to believe. I think it's yeah. just human nature we want to protect and help our families that's what i think most refugees are going to do when they come here
0: oh yeah without a doubt i mean my high school a the sizable chunk of uh kids in my high school were either vietnamese or cambodian refugees so this was like this was late 80s so yeah, that's right. you know early 90s so there there were there were a lot of children of you know the end of the vietnam war all I mean, first off, like none of these none of these kids were from none of their parents were rich, yeah. right? Yeah, they had lost everything. They they had lo- they had come from very elite positions in both countries. You know, they were people of status in their countries. Came here and were right at the bottom, you know, bottom rung, yeah. so to speak. They could not have been happier That's right. to be here. I have never met anybody who has lost anything who was more happy than these people. Because yeah. to your point, like, they escaped a terrible situation. And I think, and I think I again, you, like, I think that goes for just, a, go on, sorry. Yeah, no, I was
1: saying, and, and I'm guessing if it's anything like my high school was, all of these folks that came from Vietnam and Cambodia, their families ended up picking up some business and working so hard and made it successful. It could have been... A restaurant, a dry cleaner, whatever—they um, were incredible. And I remember we had a family that lived just a few houses down from us, who came from Vietnam. They were uh, refugees from there again from the '80s, and they did really well. Their kids did very well. All three kids went to college. I think that's kind of what you want. So you know, that's people coming from a quote socialist nation, and we certainly never saw mm-hmm. any evidence of that once they were here. So these are just anecdotes, but. I'm hopeful that people, you know, when we're making decisions around refugees are basing it more on some evidence and data rather than sort of a fear of the unknown or a hypothesis of what people might be like because they came from X, Y, Z nation.
0: I'm going to I want to get back to Ukraine, but I'm going to give one like overarching broad yeah. generalization, which is to to anyone here who might be an, a skeptic of immigrants, I will tell you this. Nobody who comes to another country to work is lazy. All right. Their, their kids inherit that their grandkids are lazy. Their grand as the grandchild of immigrants, I can tell you my generation, (laughs) totally lazy compared to our parents and and grandparents, totally lazy. And the only thing that lights a fire under our ass is the fact there are more like first generation immigrants coming in, trying to outwork us. So in my mind in my mind, if I had to deport anybody, it would be (laughs) anybody who's third generation or beyond. Just get them out of here. Time to get some new blood in here. You've had your opportunity and look what you've done with it. So that's my my overarching generalization. (laughs)
1: You know, what I think it goes to is if you grow up in a family that has seen hardship, you tend to work harder Mm -hmm. and you've just seen how difficult Mm -hmm. it is to really actually be somewhat successful. You don't take things for granted. So that I think transcends yeah. cultures, geographies, age groups, gender, whatever. You see hardship. You want to work hard because you're like, I'm not going to be back there where I've seen it, how bad it can be. There's that old parable. It says the first generation builds it. The second generation grows it. The third generation destroys it. Yes. <laughs> so it sort of plays right into what you said.
0: Here I am. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I'm the third. trying not to be. So there's there's one kind of last broader topic I want to get into. And this yeah. run, this runs around one poll you did, which is the idea of militarization. And the, the thing I'm interested in is I'm wondering whether Americans now have a changed view towards militarization. And one of the questions you asked was whether there's now a case for America to increase our nuclear arsenal. And so I'm curious, number one, what the responses were there, but number two, if there are any other comments or trends that indicate that folks are really a little more apt to endorse increased military spending, increased military involvement, what have you.
1: So on that poll, you know, does the war in Ukraine make the case for an increase in nuclear arsenal? This was from about two weeks ago. And uh, again, 624 votes, so a great sample. 80% said no, just 12% said yes and eight unsure. And that's rare for us to find a poll where you have such a clear majority. And so what it, you know, what it, if, you, if you read the comments, you see a lot of people saying, look, we've got more than enough nukes to blow each other up many, many times over and maybe not uh, a need to to keep producing more. The comments in the no, I thought were also interesting. So there were some benign ones like saying, look, our nuclear arsenal is aged and, and needs to be updated. So that's why I would say maybe not increase the number, but make sure that it's up to date. Another is look, you can have different kinds of nuclear weapons. So I think there are some that are called uh, tactical. I'm going to miss the word, but basically not as lethal, I guess. Yeah, the they're that like I small
0: nukes, basically.
1: Something like that. I'm going to see if I can find the exact term. The other one that I thought was interesting was they said, look, if you think about nukes, they're always a very good deterrent. It's a reason why most people are now afraid to go and engage directly with Russia, even though they could probably be crushed by NATO, you know, they have nuclear weapons. So some commenters are saying, actually, give nukes to every country. And then, you know, there's no reason to attack anyone, which I thought was interesting. I was like, OK, I'm not sure I trust every country to use them or to, to have good controls
0: around yeah, them. Yeah, that's
1: I, I, can, I, that's I mean, sort I, of a
0: smoke the whole pack philosophy.
1: Exactly. So you know, I, I think there's, a, there's definitely not an interest to increase nukes overall. So again, nearly everyone is consistent in saying Russia should not have, you know, invaded Ukraine. There's, just, there's no way you can pull together a logical argument to justify that. But that said, the expansion of NATO and its forces all around Russia we're definitely poking in their eye, you know, putting a stick in their eye. And, you know, Putin has been complaining about this since, I don't know, two thousand five, two thousand six, I think. So it's been fourteen plus years running that he's been saying, you know, this NATO expansion is not cool, is not cool. And I think most people, at least in NATO, have said, well, too bad, so sad. There's really not much you can do. They're sovereign countries if they want to do it, if they want to join NATO, if they want to support us. That's their prerogative. Sucks to be you. Which I understand. Like I mean, they are sovereign countries. They can do what they want. But it's also a little naive to think that you're not part of a larger geopolitical scenario. It'd be like if Nepal said, look, we're buddies with India because we have a lot more common ancestry. And India's like, great, we're going to put a whole bunch of nukes right on your border with China. Like, really, are you that dumb? You know that that's just, you're going to cause problems, whether you think you're Mm -hmm. in your rights to do or not. So I think there's certainly a group of our our poll respondents that have said increased militarization in the form of just more bases, more military outposts, more equipment all over the places where we think there might be bad actors, actually may not be such a good thing.
0: It's been interesting for me to watch this because you know when you think about this war, the one thing I've learned very quickly is you can't think about this war in isolation. And you really need to think about what this means for a number of different players across the world. And obviously there's Russia and Ukraine. And one of the things I learned two episodes back is that Putin's power structure is directly threatened by a liberal democracy at its doorstep. And it was the pursuit for democracy on the part of Ukraine that ultimately spooked Putin and the elites, because they saw those protests in 2014 arriving on their doorstep. And now the the second part of that is that You know, there's also the role China could play, and in China's mind, it's it's a question as to does this antagonize the West enough to keep them busy, versus does this saddle them with association with a bad actor. But in the middle of it all is also the fact that these sanctions only have teeth because of the U.S. dollar and because the dollar is so dominant. And there's a headline that really flew under the radar, but. There's been this flirtation between China and Saudi Arabia now, and Saudi Arabia hinted that they'd be willing to sell oil in Wuhan. I don't know if you saw that one. I
1: did, yeah, Um, I saw that.
0: The fact, the, the, the biggest weapon against Russia right now is sanctions, and that requires dollar dominance. And if China ultimately upends that, their ability to continue to push their agenda at the expense of their neighbors is is greatly increased and i think you know there's a couple takeaways i'm getting from this you know one is like i i kind of can't help but view what's going on as a true battle between democracy and autocracy do people view this as like a bigger conflict or they're just viewing this as russia and ukraine and not really looking at the bigger geopolitical implications
1: no i definitely think people get that China is a big actor in this space. There've been a lot of articles on it, which then means it ranks on the factuals, just volume of coverage. And in the okay. polls, you'll you'll periodically see comments about this as well. We explicitly polled what should China's role be, and so 437 votes, and 67% said yes. Mind you, you know, on the no side, a lot of people said, look, you know, you can't start sort of fighting with all the big nations at the same time. So I do think that a lot of people get that this is a bigger issue than just Russia. So if anything, I think the takeaway for a lot of global investors should be, well, if things could go south in Russia so quickly because it does something, while China is a much, much bigger influence on the global economy than Russia. Russia's economy is actually not that significant with respect to trade for most nations. China's is. But China could also, through its own actions internally or through external actions, sanctions also really change things. So if anything, I think what this war has done is made countries more nationalistic. I think a lot of countries are going to say, man, we really can't rely on third party nations for important stuff. I mean, first there was COVID and many countries figured out we couldn't even have a surgical mask domestically produced. And they're like, okay, we really need to have some of this stuff. Now with this, we're finding out, wait a minute, grain supplies, neon, computer chips, all kinds of stuff. And you start to realize so many things. We, we are all interlocked because of trade. And I think a lot of countries are going to say, yeah, maybe not for everything. Maybe we should secure some stuff first. I think that's, that's going to be the upshot of it is my guess.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. This podcast grows by word of mouth, as I said earlier. Um, Getting back to something I said at the top of the episode, I've been surprised by how unified public opinion is against Russian aggression. And in the case of this conversation, I didn't expect it to go so far as for there to be a red line where people would want the u.s to get involved and it looks like there's decent support should russia use chemical weapons and i'm trying to be measured in my words here because i don't want to come off like some armchair quarterback but i'm having a really tough time figuring out how the west doesn't get pulled into this because from the conversation i had with ben studebaker two weeks ago you should check out that episode if you haven't already it's clear that Putin is going to do whatever is necessary to win or at least to fully defeat Ukraine. And it's also clear that our allies in Europe view this as an existential threat. And as longtime listeners of this show will know, I've always viewed this decade as one that is going to be transformational in terms of this country and in terms of the power structure Uh, worldwide, and I'm very curious as to how this particular conflict affects that. Uh, Specifically, and this is something we talked about a bit in the last episode, how the effective use of sanctions might motivate actors such as China to seek to dethrone the dollar's influence in the global economy, because those sanctions don't work without dollar dominance. This is something... We're going to be exploring in upcoming episodes. I hope you enjoy the ride. As always, YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Uh, Bye-bye.